welcome back our stellar selling circular economists uh if we just roll with the alliterative uh nature of this uh again welcome back to another episode in our new season gar punnett here with always sabira lakani boom uh i'm the ceo of a company called loop layer where we are rethinking reimagining remanufacturing uh and how we generate revenue from remanufacturing and circular manufacturing. Sabira, please tell the people who you are. I'm the Senior Director of Product at Reapley. We sell enterprise technology for organizations to track what they've purchased so that they can make the smartest decision about how to maximize the use of what they've purchased. So in all, between the two of us, we're, we're really completing that, that circle. We are trying to just find every way that we can maximize the utility uh, take things apart, build them back together, sell them again, and reuse them again all around. Um, well, as we are trying our new format here in season two, I think it's up to me to talk about something new, to educate the audience. Teach me something. Try to teach yeah. you something new, which can sometimes be a challenge for us. Not to say we know everything, but we're 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 plugged in. We know what's going on. Um, on this one, it's also fairly topical. So what I actually wanted to talk about was uh, the, and this plays into to Theo, the the rise of the automotive remanufacturing, um, mm -hmm. and how automotive companies are fully embracing uh, remanufacturing, and you've got various companies now uh, around the world that are looking at how can we start to rethink not only the design components of our vehicles, but then mm -hmm. also the ecosystem of which we're building these vehicles. Now, mm -hmm. I say ecosystem, yes, that can call to mind uh, our natural systems, our forests, our river, all of those, uh, the oceans. Um, what's great about these types of ecosystems in the tech world that we live in is just as much as we can think of them as being natural and being environmentally friendly, well, we're also... Each of these companies are now trying to do the Apple ecosystem, do the Google ecosystem, where how do you actually create a product? How do you build a circular economy around capturing consumers and providing them value throughout the life cycle of that consumer, throughout the life cycle of that product? Um, and so that's how we can really continue to think about ecosystems, uh, uh, is hmm. how do we get a consumer like you or me, someone who's going to buy a product? Uh, but ultimately, someone also who's going to maybe want um, to further invest in that product so that doesn't that we're not getting rid of it before its life end of the life cycle, or if we're continually investing in this product, and we're gonna we'll just we're gonna use cars as an example today. That if we're continually investing in our vehicles, and maybe mm -hmm. this vehicle never will have an end of life. Maybe we can build a car that can then be continually replacing different modular components where mm -hmm. this is uh, sort of the goal that we can be built into this ecosystem and we're never going to leave. And one of those is actually a part of, um, I'm going to talk about two companies. One is Stellantis. Um, and mm -hmm. our, our, some of our users might know Stellantis, some of them may not. Um, but Stellantis is, uh, I'm going to actually quickly look this up because I exited out of the, the browser, <laughs> um, which is they are the owners of, um, various subsidiaries uh, and brands. So Alfa Romeo, Chrysler, Dodge, Fiat, Jeep, Maserati, 
uh, Peugeot, if some people know that brand, but also Ram. Um, and so mm -hmm. this is a massive car company that as of November announced that they were actually going to build their first circular economy hub in Italy. Mm -hmm. And this hub uh, is going to be dedicated towards actually the exploration, not necessarily the building of these cars just yet, but the exploration of uh, how do we start to re redesign and rethink what a car could be if we had circularity in mind. Um, and this is all out of uh, a page in, um, I'm going to share my screen now, of how do we, Ooh, I'm going to do this live. You can do it. No, I'm not. You got blocked. Uh, oh, here we go. No, I've got it. Here we go. So actually, this is going to be all of part of their goals for their new sales goals. Um, and so they've got a dare forward goal by 20 uh, being carbon net zero by 2038. And Stellantis is actually going to start pursuing this by thinking about circular product offerings within all of their their subsidiaries. Um, I hope to maybe go pay homage to go do a pilgrimage to such a site in Italy at some <laughs> point. That would be so cool to see a circular hub in 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 motion and and thinking about redesigns. Uh, this is Stellantis's update, um, and this is where they're trying to reduce their carbon footprint by fifty percent by twenty thirty. Um, again, by dealing with the digital revolution as well, and then tech, um, and then ultimately in the value that they're creating is really then building out each of these subsidiaries and adding value to each of their, their own P&Ls. Um, and so ultimately, they want to build that ecosystem across their brands uh, and across their, their, their client portfolio. Now, on the other hand, um, I think, well, this is actually what they're, they're building. This is what uh, is, is their, the entrance to their circular economy hub. Um, hmm. But this is where we get to pivot because we actually have a design of a car um, not by Stellantis, but actually by BMW. And this is BMW's uh, circular car, um, where they're going to be That's rethinking something. the car at a component level of not only what is made to go in these cars and how it's designed, uh, but also how it actually can be made to be more modular, how they can understand at a technology level everything that goes into this car so that you can start to track these components and track these materials in a much more um, transparent way. You've got, you know, this was an interesting seating choice, frankly, that I thought, uh, you know, because we can look at some of these fabrics and be like, oh, that, that seems like that might be a little harder to recycle. Um, but this is what they went for their first design. And it looks cool. Any reactions here? Um, it looks futuristic but Looks also 70s at the same time. That's a good call out. Yeah, it does. <laughs> yes. Futuristic um, yet comforting to an older generation where they're like, oh, I'm not too intimidated by this. Yeah. I think what I'm noticing is, um, I guess like I don't see a lot of plastic, which I see in a lot of vehicles. Like I was a first time car buyer this year. I went with the Toyota RAV4 hybrid. And nice. Um, yeah, and which was, it was cool, but there's a lot of parts and pieces in the car. So what I'm, yeah. I'm noticing here is this kind of like an absence of that. It looks like you really just have like seats. I mean, we can't really see the dashboard here, but I imagine that it looks a little bit like one panel-ish. Right yeah. Oh, yeah. there it is. Oh, 
And I was spot on. <laughs> spot on. So, so, but like the thing I would think about is like, what's holding this together? Is it glue? And I know glue makes things harder to recycle. What kind of material makeup is the stuff itself? Like one of the things that we know from the recycling industry is that it's hard to aggregate like with like material. So even though you could take a component out of this and put a new component in, which is super cool, make the car more circular itself. But then the question I would have is, okay, well, what's happening to that old component after it gets repaired and reused? You know, what is the material makeup? And then the other cool thing, that's a, that's a, that was a question mark for me. And then the other cool thing I noticed, actually, if you go back to the previous image is the stitching, like it's so noticeable that the fabric is stitched on. So my guess is like, that's a, you're going to reupholster that. Yeah. That's Um, actually, that's a good call out. Cause again, this is where it comes down to how are you stitching, not gluing? How are you, uh, uh, not affixing, but, uh, bolting. Um, Mm -hmm. and kind of the call out here that I was really curious about is I saw, I actually looked at this and thought similarly to you, it was like, Oh, okay. They're going very natural materials potentially. Um, it does Mm -hmm. actually look like it's fairly simple in application Mm -hmm. and how things are put together. And then this came through and I was like, well, what type of futuristic plastic is that? Yeah. Um, and, <laughs> the and why are they doing that? I mean, the odds that I honestly, the odds that this is what this will look like is right. very low. But yeah. still, it even even from that component, it looks like oh, the the natural woods. And I know they're going futuristic, but the 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 acrylic or whatever this is going to be is going to be complicating to that circularity. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and and actually, one good example that I actually really enjoyed feeling for the first time is I was riding in a. Um, uh, a, a Rubicon um, a pickup truck and they had an all natural wood finish interior. And that mm-hmm. was actually very, I, I enjoyed that uh, thoroughly. It was mm-hmm. really cool to be in that type of uh, textured environment of, of sort of those natural woods. And so I mm-hmm. imagine that's probably where this will land is somewhere in there. Um, but even if the, you know, what's interesting about the sides too, is if you look at, it's all sort of a similar composite. Um, and mm-hmm. so maybe there's something to that too, mm-hmm. where there's going to be a recycled plastic that they use. And I kind of mm-hmm. like the mm-hmm. texture, um, mm-hmm. but maybe that's where their head's at is thinking about these recycled yeah. plastics. Um, yeah. And so the other that's thing, a... Oh, sorry. Not about like the physical, the physical nature of the circular car, but I've heard a Toyota person yeah. just kind of postulate about how in the future, like we won't own cars, like they will be owned by the manufacturer and there will be more services similar to uber when you have more self-driving cars like you're just paying for the usage of the vehicle from the point where it comes to get you to where you're going and like the networks network of cars will just kind of be like on autopilot running all the time with last mile kind of end-to-end service And that's also cool because you have like the circular nature, materialistic and composition oriented circular car, but then also the use of that car could also be very shared and uh, networked in a way that we haven't before. Right now, my car is sitting in the lot doing nothing while I'm here. So the, the maximum utility is just like totally far away. It's not really achievable right now. Well, and that's even... 
I mean, to get all sort of macro capitalism with that. I mean, that that speaks to our sense of ownership, again, that we've always talked mm -hmm. about, that we've even talked about in previous episodes of how that's going to change. Um, but the sense, too, of how are you maximizing the revenue generating potential of a vehicle? Um, and we've seen car sharing programs. I mean, that's where Turo comes into play of trying to maximize you being able to rent out your vehicle to others who might want to use that vehicle. And and it, mm -hmm. I bet the name of their game is all about decreasing the amount of risk associated with your vehicle so that you feel right. comfortable to do that. Um, and then ultimately too, maybe someday there will be a car company in which they don't sell cars that, and I'm sure even Uber looked into this of, of it, Uber would be the closest one to manufacture their own vehicles yeah. and just manage their own fleet. And then, yeah. lease that out on a per minute basis, um, right. which is essentially what you do when you're renting an Uber um, right. is, and then you're yeah. just paying that fee. Um, so yeah. the future yeah. is, is going to come at some point with that. And there will be a company that will take a full stab at that. And maybe it will be one of these manufacturers and they'll, who knows, yeah. maybe we'll speak of a future acquisition here where Stellantis acquires Uber and now they have this full fleet. Uh, and, oh, wow. and, and yes, exactly. So get crazy full with driverless it. fleet, full driverless fleet of a vehicle that's owned by the corporation that made it. Yes. Um, so dystopian or future hope? I don't know in that. So that that's ultimately <laughs> up to us to decide in many, many other years on this podcast. Um, but that all brings us to what we're talking about here today with with Theo and our guest and we actually get to talk talk to Theo Lamparis um who is is working at BBB Industries uh and BBB is is all about actually making the remanufacturing future happen uh with their uh, uh remanufacturing facilities and they're a third party operation um and so what was your general impression that we can both leave the guests that that their audience with with listening what they can expect and then What's, how are you sort of, uh, again, excited about what BBB had to offer? Yeah, I think I loved that I learned that the automotive industry has an existing remanufacturing player that has a long history before the circular economy was even part of our vocabulary. So somebody was innovative and yes. kind of jumped at the economic opportunity to basically like harvest underutilized parts and put them back to work. And that's, that's great. Um, and I, I really appreciated his point of view on how we have to establish relationships with many players to make remanufacturing possible. So like the element of human networking is, is yes. still required. And uh, yeah. It's, it's, it's a great uh, chat with Theo. I hope you all enjoy it. We started off with uh, how I met Theo, which is we met at the World Remanufacturing Conference not too long ago, uh, and Theo did a great job. Great introduction in his speech mixed with humor, and uh, but also some facts about the industry. And so that's actually where we picked this up off uh, in terms of the interview, and I hope you all enjoy. Uh, if you have any questions or would you like to be uh, introduced to Theo um, or any of our other guests, please reach out to us. Uh, probably the easiest way is on LinkedIn. Uh, reach out to us. We're happy to reach back out and connect more of our community members. Um, and again, so thank you for listening. And we look forward to interacting you uh, further on any of these digital platforms like 
Apple and Spotify and even YouTube. So leave some comments and we're happy to get back to you. Uh, enjoyed this interview with Theo Lamparis of BVB Industries. I'll sing your praises, Theo. Theo did a, a very great job of that at the conference oh, that we were you, at. Um, and I thought it was it was one of the better ones, Theo, to be honest. I think it was, a, it was there was an appropriate amount of sprinkle of humor in there that you did very well. So which, which conference? Yes, Theo, go ahead. Tell her about um, the conference. So Gar and I attended the World Remanufacturers Conference, which is a grouping of remanufacturers across the globe. We had a gentleman flying from Australia and then some uh, automotive uh, gentleman from Germany as well. And it's uh, part of the Remanufacturers Industry Council and also sponsored by the Golisano Institute for Sustainability up near you in Rochester, uh, New Jersey. Or New York, excuse me. Very so cool. It just brings all the green manufacturers uh, across the globe together, and I was lucky enough to be able to be on stage. So, can I assume that you're a remanufacturer? You're right on the yeah. dot. Yeah, we can uh, jump right into score. that. Uh, score. score. <laughs> <laughs> uh, with that, tell us about BBB. Um, sure. This is where we can go in for the for the lay person. Um, let we can start high level what the industry is and then how you all have not only taken that to the next level, you can even get into what the future is. And then Sabir and I can piece that apart and, and dive into the details. Okay. Sounds good. So BBB Industries uh, has been you know, working since 1987 and we are a remanufacturer. Uh, we like to use the term sustainable manufacturer, but I'll get into that a bit later. What a remanufacturer does is it takes a product that is broken or worn and will completely disassemble it. It will clean all the parts, replace the 10 to 20% of the product that's broken, uh, reassemble it, clean it, test it back to the original specifications that it was sold out as new, and return it to a uh, customer uh, on the road. And in our specific industry, the automotive, there's the original equipment manufacturer, you know, those big names that you see driving along the road, the big dealerships that sell new cars. Well, quite frequently, you have to fix a part on your car, whether it be an alternator, starter, brake caliper, something of the sorts. So what will happen is uh, you'll go to your local dealership, your local automotive uh, gentleman who's fixing your car, and you know they'll take the broken one and they'll put a new one on. And they'll take that broken one and send it to BBB Industries where we will remanufacture it. And so we've been doing this since 1987. It started with alternators, starters. Um, so I got to have my, my first interruption here. It sure. won't be my last here, Theo, which is sure. you said something that was very, you, very quickly, you went into, they send it back to us. Yes. And that's yes. something I know Sabira will clue in. It was like, why do they send it back to you? How do they send it back to you? We can talk about the processes now in a little bit detail of, What's that like, and why is that important of that send-back mechanism? Ah, uh, very good. So, of course, we're talking about circular economy, and you can only exactly. have a circular economy <laughs> if you have uh, some sort of material to remanufacture or to fix or to be in a circular state. And so our lever to do that is what we call a core charge. So when you go and you buy a product, you have the choice between uh, a new product, say a new alternator, or a new starter that goes to your vehicle, or a remanufactured product that goes to your vehicle. And when you buy that product, you pay a little bit extra. You pay a little extra 
And that extra is called a core charge. And you use that product. And when you return that pro product that's broken, you get that back. And so it's an incentive base to get the product back into the hands of the person that sold it to you. And now we have really good relationships with our customers where we know exactly who to go to to uh, source our worn and broken content that is used as fodder for our finished goods. So that's how the reverse logistics works on that. Point. I have so many questions. I'm very excited. Okay, so we have a deposit system. Very cool. Who is the payer in, in the world of um, automotive, which I have not replaced any of these parts in my car before? Um, is it the gentleman who's fixing the car and then he passes that core charge on to the end customer in some way? Is the end user making that decision? Who's actually deciding to participate in this circular activity? Okay, that's a really good question. So. You can go, say your Sabira is driving down the road and there's a check engine light that comes on. She takes it to her local mechanic shop and she, she says, oh, goodness, you're going to need a new brake caliber. Oh, shoot. Okay. And so then it gives you the option. Okay, here, here's a brake caliber. You have, you have two choices. You can have a remanufactured caliber, which traditionally is less than a new caliber. So it's more economic for you. Or you can have a new one. Okay. In this instance, let's just say you buy the new one. Foolish, but that's okay. <laughs> so you buy the new one, and part of that purchase price is that core charge. And you know, you'll see it on the receipt. Okay, part of it, you know, at the maintenance shop, part of it's labor, part of it's the actual product. Maybe sometimes it's core charge. Okay. So that core charge is being passed along to you. Now, it will go back to the person you bought it from when it's broken. All right, and they will give you that money. So now that core charge is passed along to the seller. Now, BBB works with our customer to buy core back, okay? And when we buy it back, we will pay them for that core, okay? So that's how we bring it back to BBB Industries. So it does get passed along, and all of it is a lever or an incentive to keep that part in the circular economy. And it's very economic-based. And yeah. Gar will tell you, not until the past two to five years has sustainability been cool. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, we've been wearing the sunglasses since 1987. <laughs> so. Yes. Okay, one and, more question. Oh, sorry. No, nope, nope. One more question. <laughs> you have all the questions. Go for it, Sria. Oh, no. Now did I forget my question? Um, oh, so yeah, this is an industry-wide core charge, meaning this is happening on the purchase of all new brake calipers or is it just some auto uh, mechanics are deciding to offer that as an option uh, so core charge is pretty commonplace and it's very dependent on uh, the rate that the core is, is returned on its own i say say a core is pretty valuable and when i say a core i mean like a broken or worn part when, when a core is fairly valuable, maybe the core charge could be a little bit higher to incentivize, okay, we, we need those back, so we're going to incentivize the customer to bring it back, incentivize our customer to retain that partnership and bring it back to us. So it's fairly commonplace among the industry. Um, I can't speak to outside automotive or industrial, uh, but at least automotive is very common. 
Yeah, it does get a little more rare um, outside of uh, some of these industries. And that ultimately is my fascination. And, and just to drive home again, I mean, we're talking starters and alternators, power steering mechanisms, brake calipers, turbochargers. These are very much focused in the automotive. Um, what would you call heavy? The, the larger uh, is that uh, heavy, heavy duty, heavy duty, heavy duty yes. sector. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's this is just to paint the picture for someone who's listening and being like, where do I fit into this? Well, you fit into it if you have a car and if you're going to get that car serviced and you have that choice to make and you're going to make, as Theo put it, the best decision, not the not the unfortunate decision of buying but you're buying a remanufactured part, this is where that buying decision actually happens. Um, now, Theo, can you speak to, um, that's actually one of the decisions that a consumer will make, but that's actually not the only decision being made in the process. You all tend to actually work with those shops and those as, as, a, as a dealer of that product. Um, can you talk a little bit more about how you all are supplying those vendors or, or, or supplying those OEMs even um, that are original equipment manufacturers, just if anybody's listening and wondered what acronym, but like, can you talk a little bit more about that distribution network that, that lives within remanufacturing? Sure, sure. So there is a uh, manufacturer of a product, then there's uh, the, the OEM or original equipment manufacturer that, that buys the product. It gets used, it gets worn. Um, it gets returned to us, hopefully, and then it'll go back to that original equipment manufacturer or another one of our, our partners, like some of the auto stores that are down the street here. So your question can you, is... Not to, not to favor anybody, but can you name an auto part like, so that people see it and go, oh, that's what they're talking about? Sure. So there's... Um, like know, an O'Reilly's? O'Reilly's uh, exa- okay. Yeah, yeah. You know, something like uh, that of the source. You know, you'll go and wherever you get your car fixed and you buy parts. Right. You can even buy parts online. Some people do that and they will, uh, you know, they will uh, fix it themselves. We call those um, independent uh, jobbers. So in your question, once again, is, okay, so the customer makes a decision, but also what causes an OEM or one of our partners to decide to be part of a circular economy? That's a really good question and, and something that as a sustainability guy kind of makes it my job more important. And I'll tell you why. Sustainability has become a very hot topic. Okay. And when I say sustainability, it's a very unknown uh, subject matter. And so what happens when you have a new unknown subject matter? We kind of tie our ideas to one metric. Okay. And then we expand. And that one metric that you always hear about is carbon footprint carbon emissions, carbon neutral, all of those make it are all about one thing, and that's carbon emissions. Okay. Carbon emissions is the emissions that a company is responsible for in the, in the working of their operations. So an OEM, like one of those big major automotive manufacturers, has a few carbon emissions. So they have carbon emissions when they turn on their lights in their office. They have carbon emissions when they create a new car, all right? They have carbon emissions. They have to take responsibility for the carbon emissions. When Joe Schmo buys a car from them and drives it down the street, they have to take responsibility for that. And so where does BBB fit into this relationship? One of the other categories of carbon emissions they have to take responsibility for is the emissions created when manufacturing their parts and products. Okay. So there's a gentleman at... A large OEM who is a purchaser, all right? His name is, his name is Brian. 
and, and Brian goes and he asks you purchase parts to sell to uh, customers like you and me who need to fix our cars. And when he's going to go purchase that group of parts, he needs to buy a hundred alternators. Okay, he has the choice between he has the choice between a, you know different suppliers of those hundred alternators. And two of the things that he's thinking about when he's making that decision are price. Okay, how, what's the cheapest I can buy this alternator for? And the second is quality. All right, what supplier can I really rely on for that product? Well, that is old, those two are an old way of thinking, and the new way of thinking is this third one: carbon emissions of that product. So now Brian is thinking about, well, let's see, new or reman? What happens on price? Well, reman is generally a little bit cheaper, if not more cheaper than than new. Two, the quality is the same, if not better, than new. And three, we look at the carbon footprint of a circular economy versus new manufacturing. That's going to help us attain our carbon emissions goals. So that's a very roundabout way of saying that BBB and remanufacturers fulfill new needs for OEMs. I love With that. that. Oh, yeah. I, real quickly. No, no. I just okay. want to get into the mechanics of that operation then. Um, and I know we're a little bit all over the place, but this is kind of the fun of this podcast is we kind of get to poke and prod on different <laughs> ideas. So, uh, but ultimately I want to break it down because I think I originally interrupted back when you were explaining BBB, but I want the listener to understand and even whoever is listening or watching this video to understand. What is the process of when you get that part back? And you mentioned it briefly if you take it, but you do it. But like talk about specifically that there's, there's, there are humans that are taking things apart and then doing activities to those to get them ready back for use. Can you break that down into maybe some stages so that someone, that average Joe Schmo on our end of the listeners, um, or, or Jen Schmo, um, whoever's listening, uh, could actually start to really break down what it means to remanufacture something. Okay. And, sure, and sure. I also want to just, like, the, the, the thing to add to that question is, how do you make sure, or what are you doing so that it is, equal or better than new. Okay, very good. So I'll touch on that point as well. So we will, the first step is, is getting these components or cores back to be the industry's manufacturing sites. And when we do that, we will have this big bucket, say a big truckload, come on in, of alternators, starters, brake calipers, turbochargers, steering stuff. And it's just, oh my goodness, we have this big, big thing of course. So first you have to do is separate it. Separate, identify what it is. So what, what is this? What, what year, make, model does it, does it go to? Is it rotating electric product? Is it a braking product? Okay, we know this is a rotating electric product. It's really dirty, and we know it's broken and worn, but we don't know where. So the first thing we're going to do is clean it with water. Uh, side note, we just installed a water recycling plant, but that's a side note. Clean it with water, and then separate it, and understand what was broken on the product. Okay, so we separate it. Okay, this is broken. It's this it's this two dollar doohickey that goes in it that caused the entire thing to fail. We don't want to throw the whole unit out, we just wanna fix that two dollar thing. So we'll fix it. Wait, and so when you get the truck, sorry, nobody yes, has sorry. told you this is the thing we know this is the thing that's broken in well, it. Well we have a team well, not that the is truck, core right? suppliers. Well that's the part. The actual part. Oh, sorry, like the truck full of stuff, I meant. Yeah, in the truck full of stuff. Nobody's saying there's like uh, one to a hundred things in here and here's what's wrong in the hundreds of things. 
that's where the relationship with the suppliers come in and our partners is, oh, we're looking for this set of parts. So generally we'll have a, a pretty good idea of what's coming in to the manufacturing site. And that will also tell us where to send the truck as well. So I don't, I don't mean to say that it's totally random coming in. We have a very good idea and that's part of the increment. Hey, so please send back 100 units of this core and, and we get it back. And sometimes we will bill if the core is, you know, not what we were looking for, right? And so we get down to this part where we have washed it, got all the dirt and grease off from its first life. We've separated it to understand, okay, what's broken. We've purchased that backup $2 doohickey instead of throwing the full thing away. And we'll put it back together. All right, we'll clean it once more because that process takes some time, takes some labor, a significant amount of labor. And then we will test it. And in the testing phase, we are testing for uh, driving along in Michigan, you know, on the icy roads, up in Alaska, driving in the heat of Phoenix, you know, wherever it's going, because you have to think it's going around the world. We have to test it so that it is as good or better than, it, than if you're buying it new. And Sabir, to your comment, well, how could it, how could it be better than new? Hmm, interesting. It's been used once by Joe Schmo. Now it's going to be used by Brian. How could it be possibly better? Okay, so when you buy an iPhone, and it says the first iPhone ever, and it comes out. And then, like, three months later, there's an update because you have some sort of glitch in the first iPhone. In the remanufacturing process, when we're testing it, we have seen we are not just testing that one product. We are testing that one product's history over the five years it's been on the road in the United States. And so we know there's certain failure rates in a certain type of alternator that if we can upgrade a certain part inside of it, we can actually make it better and extend its life even further than it was originally meant for. And so we're actually improving the product as we're remanufacturing it. And so Wait. that's where that term comes in. Very fascinating. So you're saying you get a big piece of heavy equipment. You mm -hmm. One thing about that thing has failed, but because you know that there are failure rates of other things in it, and part of the remanufacturing process, you're not just fixing the thing that's broken, you're fixing the other, maybe high, highly probable things that might break. Exactly right. Because we have years and years cool. of knowing that thousands of drivers have used that part and they're coming back and, oh, shoot, you know, this part of the alternator is just not really doing great. Okay, so let's, let's just upgrade it. And like, let's not worry about that on a remanufacturing part. I love that. That's so cool. It's thinking ahead it's not being reactive it's being proactive and that's the differentiator well, and it's ultimately what we strive for when even in circular economy theory is the feedback loop on design of how do you actually when you have a tight yeah. relationship with a with a client and a consumer and there's opportunities to improve upon that without the emissions that's kind of the whole point and so that's that's where you know there's a reality to remanufacturing that more industries should be embracing mm -hmm. um and that now it's it's our job in the industry to keep chugging along and proving more and more that this is a reality that they should follow um to the future a little bit um i know that bbb um has is really been looking into what are the new things that the economy is to be expected on essentially uh it's not just now car parts um there's other things in our economy that are going to start to break down and might have the potential for for remanufacturing can you talk a little bit more about that iterative process how does a remanufacturer see the landscape 
and go, oh, this is an industry we might want to serve. And then how do we go from there in terms of more remanufacturing capabilities? Sure. So customers' demands, they always change. People will always want uh, different modes of transportation, different ways to uh, generate power. And so those are the two facets that we saw consumers start to make. And, and you see it in media. People want to start driving electric vehicles. Uh, people want to start generating power on their own outside of the grid. Okay, so then let's take a look at remanufacturing solar panels. And let's take a look at remanufacturing EV batteries. And those were the next two steps we took. It would be a shame if we had 30 years of remanufacturing experience and decided to stay in the automotive combustion industry. That would be a little bit of a shame. And so what we decided to do was use that experience, apply it to those new markets that are developing, and grow the circular economy to whatever consumers want. If, if consumers do choose to transition all to electric vehicles, we want to create a circular economy for electric vehicle batteries. And same goes with solar panels. This is this was the fun part about the conference uh, that I went to, Sabira, where part of the, and I thought it was so well addressed, you addressed it, uh, uh, Jeff uh, addressed it as well, um, and we might actually be able to talk to him on, on uh, a podcast as, uh, soon, which is, it's the, the give and take of doing a circular action and reducing emissions with the idea that it's continuing to perpetuate um, internal combustion engines. Um, and it's mm. this idea that somehow that makes it a dirtier industry. Ultimately, I don't subscribe to that. I think you all are, are not only doing what mm. the economy needs, what your clients needs in terms of providing parts back to their use, but you're also then looking toward the future and saying, hey, our clients and customers aren't there yet, or we all want to move to a direction, but still it's going to involve remanufacturing. And so I loved that recognition in the conference that said, hey, the reality is, is we're remanufacturers. Yes, we remanufacture these things because these are what our clients need, but there's more. There's more to this to be coming in the future. And I thought, I thought that was a really, that was a great line that you all had to walk on saying, this is where we are now. This is the growth that we have ahead of us. Yeah, exactly right. Remanufacturers, especially in the automotive industry, keep people on the road, especially mm -hmm. when money is tight. So if you're going to the automotive store, you have to fix your car and you need a more economic option, remanufacturing comes into play. And it's unfortunate that not everyone can afford an electric vehicle and just, mm -hmm. okay, let's get everyone electric vehicles and stop making road emissions. Well, that's a, that's a pipe dream. Well, the least we could do is provide the offering so that people can stay on the road and get to their critical jobs to get to their kids to school and do it in an economic way. And then also have the ability in the future to duplicate our success in a cleaner form of transportation. I, I love that y'all have grown beyond the automotive or the internal combustion uh, industry and asset type. I'm, not to put, I think that like speaks to the growth of remanufacturing and the adoption of that mindset overall. I'm just curious from like an industry perspective, why, like what's your hypothesis around why the OEMs aren't providing the service? If they're not, I don't know if they are. And, you know, are you in competition with them? Why don't they just acquire BBB? Just kind of like tell us a little bit about like, why isn't the manufacturer oh, yeah. 
doing Dive into the super political part of this theo let's go into it <laughs> if you feel comfortable well i will i will give you uh, two reasons why we have hesitation with some of our customers uh, when you think about a circular economy's transportation modes, it's it's duplicative of just a take make waste model. You know, when when I'm an OEM and I can sell somebody something, and I don't have to worry it on the worry on the back end, you know, where it goes, so that saves me some money. Uh, and now, if I'm an OEM who sells a, a product that's supposed to be in a circular economy, well, now I have to take it back, uh, hold on to it, and that takes up shelf space. And I also have to worry about transportation back to the person that's say, remanufacturing the product. So that's the first one. Uh, the second one is this idea that it's always been the same way. We've always focused on price, and we've always focused on the people that we are familiar with, the new manufacturers. And so if we want to start a new project with a new OEM, and the people that are making the decisions are the people that are graded on price and uh, what they've known and their, their reliability of what they've known. There's gonna, they're going to be a little bit hesitant to try something new or to engage in a circular economy, especially if it's early on in sustainability movement and it's early on in sustainability education. Sometimes it's just not there. And so to answer your question, those are the two hesitations that we hear. Yeah, fair enough. I'm not surprised. Why, yeah, and why I'm so fascinated. I mean, I was I had the pleasure of asking many questions at the at the uh conference and and one of those involved you know, where do the OEMs take part in these conversations? And to the benefit of the remanufacturing industry, Theo, BBB, um are are catering to those organizations or are they they can buy parts. Um but ultimately, the adoption still isn't where it needs to be. Um, and, and that is the fun part that is seeing that industry of remanufacturing, which is the willingness to grow and expand in the industry and supply that to brands. And I won't name the brands, but brands that are now saying by X date, 2030, 2050, whatever it might be, we're going to be a fully circular operation. Well, that's only going to happen. Um, through organizations that are remanufacturing right now. Um, to your point, Sabira, and I am saying this, not Theo. <laughs> to your point, Sabira, I am fascinated by um, who's going to acquire what, and that is going to be the big the big question: is is when these when these uh, larger OEMs are looking to actually really put their money where their mouth is at and where their marketing's at. That's how that's going to go. Is they're going to start to supply, and they're going to start to supply in huge volume. And then the acquisitions are going to start to follow that. It's going to be a fascinating look at that's how we will achieve circularity is when we fully embrace those models. Mm -hmm. Now, we can fully yeah. separate Theo out from that theoretical conversation because <laughs> he's not associated in any way with that opinion. <laughs> but but ultimately, I mean, it's a fascinating, fascinating industry. Um, well, what any I other question to segue? Any other question to yeah. segue him out of that, that, that concept? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I love, I love that your company, BBB, that... Tell us a little bit, like, how did you find BBB or are, are you the founder? Who's the founder? Like, who was, who was the person who thought, you know, 20 plus years ago that this is the thing to do? How has it evolved from being maybe just like a piece of the puzzle in the automotive world to a sustainability player? What's the company journey been like? Sure. And this starts with the name BBB Industries. It was founded in 1987 by 
the Bigler family, two brothers and a dad who owned the company. And they started in Rotating Electric, and it was purely economically focused, where this was an economic opportunity. Now, let me take this back. Well, where, does, where did remanufacturing start? And this was out of material necessity. From what I've read online, remanufacturing started after, during World War II, when all the material was going to the war efforts. And we had to find a way to fix our cars stateside with the materials that were already in the car. And so that's where remanufacturing came to be. So then to answer your question, well, how did I find BBB Industries? That's a funny story. No, I'm not the founder. I've been here at BBB Industries for two years now. Uh, out of college, or excuse me, out of high school, I joined the Marine Corps, and I was a supply chain uh, officer in the Marine Corps, excuse me, an officer, manager in the Marine Corps. And so after I worked in Japan, Alabama for four years, I went and studied supply chain management at Auburn University. And I enjoyed my time there. And in the last semester, BBB Industries came in and sponsored a project for our class focused on sustainability. And I fell in love. Our, our group did very well on the project. And the CEO was in the room and I was hired. And it's uh, history ever since. So I, I fell in love with remanufacturing and sustainability in remanufacturing since I found out what it was that, uh, a few years ago. Well, that's, you know, and I love, I love that intro into remanufacturing too. And, and maybe we can do that justice too in our, in our own intro to segue into that, that explanation. It's been our, our first, probably my first and Sabira, our first maybe look at this was when we were working with the defense logistics agency. Um, and we were starting to look at DLA and then defense logistics, uh, defense logistics agency disposition services end, which that was almost my first understanding of, whoa, the Department of Defense has a lot of remanufacturing capabilities, has a lot of internal reuse capabilities that they're trying to focus on, mostly because of the sheer volume that they're dealing with of, of products and, and, and different expenses. But it's fascinating where that was my first real look into that and then how that's been now, uh, I think there's such a, there's even a bigger market globally and it's growing. Um, if I may, Sabira, can you talk a little bit about from what you all know and from what you know, Theo, on the complications, because this is where I find it fascinating, the complications of remanufacturing and why it's not actually as internationally well-known, used. Um, those are fascinating bits of nug uh, knowledge nuggets for me on why this is so complicated. Why is this, why is this isn't growing? Why isn't this like absolutely the way this is supposed to happen across international borders? Ooh, that's a really good question. And I think it boils down to the nature of remanufacturing itself, where instead of creating a product, you are receiving and remanufacturing. And in that process, you must have a significant emphasis on intelligence, experience, and labor. And so when we receive a truckload of core, we have to have the experience and knowledge to understand what is the product coming in. But we have over 50,000 SKUs across the UB industries. And so for all those SKUs, the question is, well, what is it? First, that's a tough question. What is the common failure rate? And if I open it up and look at it, how do I identify that failure rate? So that's three or four questions right there 
that you have to answer for a large variety of products. So you think about all the cars you see on the road, and in each one of those cars is a different alternator, and any one of those alternators can come back to BBB. Well, you better have a, a team that is really intelligent about what alternators look like and, and what are the failure rates on, on alternators. So it's, it's a beautiful concept, the circular economy. And for it to be globally accepted, we must understand what we already have on the road or yeah. in any industry. We already must understand what we have. What, what have we already mined? What have we already made? What can possibly come back to a remanufacturer? And, and there needs to be a good partnership with the OEM as well. Mm. Are you seeing one of, one of the guests that we had um, on previously, Rob from Molg, has you know, developed a way for robots and AI to kind of like store that knowledge in a way so that when the next, you know, he works on servers, when the next server comes in the door, identifying, you know, how to disassemble it is much easier. How, if at all, are you all thinking about amplifying that knowledge with the tools available to us with technology? That's a good question. I, I very much respect artificial intelligence and its capabilities. And I think that that field is growing immensely. And, and there's definitely going to be a future that you prescribe in, in your question. For right now, what is coming through the door is extremely various and extremely different from the last piece of core that came through the door. And so I have a hard time believing that we can simply move away from human intelligence until until we can predict what comes through the door. Um, sure, it's possible. I, we, you know, we have some very smart people in the world, and praise the Lord that we do. Do I have I seen it yet as a possibility? Uh, not just yet, but maybe that's something that uh, will be worked on shortly. That I I, I think that speaks to. I mean, there's such a component to service and the human component to still making circular economy happen. We talk about it all the time with Sabira, where the reality check that Sabira, we just talked about of you going to India and seeing the circular economy happen in real time, but all with human hands. This is, these are all services that are being operated. It's no different here in the States. It's done it in defined areas frankly in areas probably we don't know about as, as about as much uh with with bbb i didn't know about bbb and it's like how do we get to know more of the bbbs in the world and we're like oh they're doing the circular economy they're that's actually happening in practice um and so ultimately that's where uh the storytelling component comes into this and and so um where i want to round this out and sabira we have one more question usually with hope i want to so sabira will ask you that question but i would love to what what are things, so, I mean, maybe this isn't as easy an answer as I, as I hope, but we're limited sometimes in our, in our time and our capacity to ask you the right question. What is the message that you try to bring most to people about remanufacturing that maybe we haven't covered today? Well, unfortunately, we have covered it just a little bit, and it's about the quality aspect. Yeah. And when you think about a, a remanufactured product, you, know, you immediately think that it's, oh, someone else has used it. and for our sector specifically, that may not be a bad thing. You know, it may be, up, may be upgraded since its original manufacturer. And so to think about it differently, that is where the idea of sustainable manufacturing comes into place. 
Because if you're going to buy a sustainably manufactured iPhone, well, it's a little bit different than buying a refurbished or remanufactured iPhone. And so to tie remanufacturing and the circular economy to sustainability, we must start thinking about it as sustainable manufacturing. We must start thinking about it as the environmentally responsible way to purchase a product that is as good or better than its new, new uh, manufacturer standard. And sometimes, you know, that feeling of, well, we're really far away from the world, believing that and seeing <laughs> remanufactured product as good or better than new seems really distant. What, what gives you hope? What, what in the last few years have you seen progress on that inspires you? Um, what keeps you excited to show up every day and continue to remanufacture stuff? Oh, that's a good question. I initially got excited and ha was hopeful when I saw BBB take the time to analyze its its benefit for the environment. Now, I get excited as sustainability has developed. I get excited with every new corporate sustainability report that that gets published by new OEM, because more often than not, in those reports, there just there's a discussion about circular economy. There's a discussion about reducing our footprint. There may even be a discussion about that company being carbon neutral by 2050. All of those things are going to be the carrot in front of the horse that requires those executives or those purchasing teams to look back at what they're purchasing and understand the carbon footprint of it, and thus leading toward increased circular economy. So that it's very hopeful to me and and you'll see it in the news it's almost in every news article every day and every you know large media corporation you'll see it more and more and it'll continue to give me hope i like the message of i think it we miss it sometimes of the power of incremental change and incremental yes. growth and we're getting there um, and I think I've long probably gone past and I think we will probably deal with younger generations after us that are like, why aren't we doing more? Why aren't we doing it fast enough? And it's like, I'm already feeling myself being like, look at what we have done. <laughs> like we're, we're moving. And so I, you know, I'm not going to become the, the, the pessimistic older generations also that are like, slow your host. We have a lot to do, but ultimately I think you're right. It's there's incremental change happening. There's incremental growth happening. Um, I want to say that's because of the three of us. It's because of our colleagues. It's because of these conversations that we get to have. So thank you for joining us, Theo. Um, this is our little time that we get to have to have these conversations. So, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, absolutely. Our conversation today is a perfect, a perfect sum of the idea that we are merging a good economic business plan with a good environmental plan as well. Coming together with a circular economy is exactly what we're aiming for. I agree with you, Gar. I'm, I'm glad we had this conversation today. So that means we get to continue to sell circular. So uh, there you go. There you go. Uh, exactly. Perfect. Um, thank you, uh, Sabira, as always, as well. Uh, Theo, we'll see you next time. Sounds good.